0: Welcome back to DC's EKG with Eric Uland and myself, Joe Grogan. DC EKG is part of the Big Wig Media Podcast Network and is distributed by our partner Evergreen. We're continuing our discussion with Tevi Troy. Tevi, you have a lot of great stories in all your books. I think Fight House particularly stands out with a number of uh, great anecdotes, especially anybody who's spent a fair amount of time in, in DC. It's always a pleasure to read your books. Uh, I'm from upstate New York. It was, an, uh, uh, Ed Koch was a part of my youth and watching, getting interested in politics. Uh, I think that's true for you as well. And you have a great anecdote about an interaction with Mayor Koch and Joe Biden. I thought maybe we'd start this final segment with you giving a little bit of context and telling that story.
1: Well, I don't, I don't know um, about Koch meeting Biden, but I, I know I have some thoughts on what Koch might have said to Biden. Because I mean, he did have this experience when he first becomes mayor in 1977, fighting through a very crowded Democratic primary, where there are six people running, and they all get between 10 and 20 percent of the vote. It's very hard fought. Uh, Mario Cuomo is one of the people running against Koch, and he and his staff put out this this awful gay slur against Koch that Koch was mad about for decades afterwards. But then Koch wins that race very narrowly. He beats Cuomo in the primary by a couple points that he beats Cuomo in the runoff. And then Cuomo runs against him again as a liberal on the ticket. Whereas Koch is the Democrat and the Republican doesn't matter much in New York those days or today. And so Koch becomes mayor of New York and Jimmy Carter, another, um, shall we say, uh, Weak Democratic president is uh, is running the show. We shall say, and and Koch torments him, uh, especially for his views on Israel, and just the, the way he's he's running things and the way he handles the New York City blackouts, and Koch is so critical of Carter that at one point Carter grabs him and says, "You have done more damage to me than any man in America." <laughs> so uh, so Koch, there there was no love lost between Koch and Carter, and Koch actually endorsed. Carter in 1980, but in a very backhanded way, and he said There's a special place for hell in him if he does not adhere to the promises He made to me about being better towards Israel in his second term and given what we know about Carter and Israel It's probably best for Carter's eternal soul that he did not win re-election because <laughs> we know he would not have adhered to that promise and as for Reagan Koch did not endorse him, but he w- welcomed Reagan to New York and was very warm towards him and he said later, I never voted for him, but I loved him.
0: <laughs> uh, was Koch one of the reasons why uh, you got interested in politics? Uh, he was a very colorful character who was dominating the headlines all the time.
1: Yeah, and not only dominating the headlines, but dominating all media. In the days before cable, really, and days certainly before the Internet, and Twitter and TikTok and everything we have today, Koch was ubiquitous in New York, and, and as you say, upstate as well. And he was in a Broadway show. He made uh, cameo appearances on TV shows. He was dominating the headlines, to be, to be sure. Uh, he was just everywhere. You could not get away from Ed Koch, and I just found him fascinating. And it's interesting, you know, as you guys know, I'm a Republican. I've worked in a Republican administration, but Koch was kind of a Democrat that I could deal with. He himself called himself a liberal with sanity. And it was really he and Ronald Reagan in my youth who inspired me to get involved in politics. Reagan was obviously a Republican, although he had come over from the Democratic Party. And and Koch never made the migration to the Republican Party. But the things I liked about Koch, meaning the support for Israel, wanting to be tough on crime, trying to get a balanced budget, calling things as he saw them and not uh, according to some weird pc list of uh, how you're allowed to speak about things i mean he he called things as they were and those things i found in the republican party more than in the democratic party
0: what do you think he'd be he would tell joe biden today
1: uh i think he'd be pretty critical of joe biden and uh the way he's let uh, I, I think the more liberal elements of the party run run the day and look koch was willing Koch gave zingers, he, he called people out, but he also knew that he had to work with people ultimately. I mean, he, he disliked Cuomo, but when Cuomo became governor after the 1982 election, he worked with him because he had to do it for getting stuff done in New York. He worked with Reagan, even though they were from different parties. And I think the way that, uh, I think what, what Biden does in calling out Republican voters in a way, you know, the the Bull Connor comment that I mentioned earlier, or the ultra MAGA, the semi-fascist stuff. I think that alienates the voters. Now, Koch was certainly willing to criticize a politician with whom he disagreed, but he didn't make it about the voters. He didn't want to alienate the voters because he wanted them on his side.
0: Do you think Biden says these things? It's coming from... Uh, inside of him, or there are forces within the White House? Who well, are we
1: we, I mean, we, should, we actually know, with Bull Connor, that came specifically from John Meacham, who is one of the historians with whom Biden has met more than once. Uh, John Meacham initially told him that he should try and be FDR and LBJ with a very narrow mm-hmm. legislative majority, which I think was a tactical error. And then he also, he used that language, meaning Meacham used that language of Bull Connor. He thought it was so brilliant that he gave it to the Biden White House, and then they used it, and I think it backfired in a terrible way completely right. counterproductive, totally.
2: Now, you're fascinated by Reagan, intrigued by Koch, decided that politics or something associated with politics is really interests you. How do you come here to D.C.? Where did you start? What would you do when you got here?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great story. Uh, well, at least I think it's a good story, because <laughs> it's my story. But sure. uh, I, I moved to Washington immediately after college, and I got a job at the American Enterprise Institute. Now, the people at the American Enterprise, I mean, they were, they were real giants there in those days. There was Judge Bork, who had famously lost that uh, confirmation hearing in the Senate and should have been on the Supreme Court. There was Jean Kirkpatrick, who was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and had written a brilliant article in commentary called Dictatorships and Double Standards that Ronald Reagan read, and that's what led to her getting the job. There was Ben Wattenberg, for whom I worked, who wrote a best-selling book about demography, of all things, in the 1960s. That brought him to the attention of the Lyndon Johnson White House, and Wattenberg went to work for Johnson. And Unless you think he was some crazy liberal, he was one of the people who was agitating to be in favor of Israel in the 1967 Six-Day War, while other forces within the Johnson administration were pushing against it. And Johnson kind of recognized that that um, Wattenberg was on the more pro-Israel side of things. So Wattenberg, like Koch, was a liberal with sanity. Uh, he saw himself as a Democrat, but a Democrat from a bygone era. And he was trying to bring the Democratic Party back to what it once was, which was a... Liberal anti communist party. When I say liberal, I mean classically liberal, believing in free speech and, and constitutional freedoms and, and things like that, um, and not in necessarily dividing everything by race or suppressing the speech of people you disagree with or political correctness. And both Koch and Wattenberg were adamantly against political correctness. So I go and I work for Wattenberg for a number of years and I look around at these great, brilliant people at the American Enterprise Institute and Frankly, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to emulate them. And I said, what do they have that I, as a 22-year-old, don't have? What what do I have to acquire in life to get to be like them? And I saw that they, for the most part, had advanced degrees, some kind of government service, and some kind of well-received book or article. I mentioned Ben's book. I mentioned Gene Kirkpatrick's article. And so I went to try and do those things. I got a PhD from the University of Texas at Austin. I worked in politics for 13 years, which is where I met both of you in in the House, in the Senate, and a number of jobs in the Bush administration, you guys kindly said earlier, and I wrote my first book intellectuals in the American presidency, right before I joined the White House staff in 2002. Uh, but then I also, as you guys know, since I left White House employee, since I left government employee in 2009, I've written over 400 articles, and I've written three more books. And uh, I just like to be part of the arena. I think I have a lot to say from my time in government. I learned a lot, but I also am a trained historian. So I bring those two things together, my government experience, plus my knowledge of U.S. history, and specifically presidential history, to try and in Inform readers about what's going on and how to view things that are happening in the American capital.
0: What did you, what did you do your PhD? What did you do your thesis on
1: it? It was on Intellectuals of in the American Presidency, which became my first book. Got and it. I specifically wrote a dissertation that I thought could be published, and fortunately it was. What was your favorite book to write, of all these books? I most enjoyed writing my second book, which was what Jefferson read, Ike watched, and Obama tweeted. It's a history of presidents and popular culture. I think I liked it so much, A, because the topic was fun, what presidents read, what movies they watched, what theater they attended, but also because it showed me that I could do this book writing thing, and it got me back on the path of, of book writing after that hiatus between working on the book before I entered government, and then I took that time off until I left government. But then also, I think Fight House... In many ways, is my best book because I, it's like any muscle, any skill. It's fun. You get better at it the more you do it, and right. I think I'd gotten better at book writing uh, after that hiatus. So I wrote two books, and then the third one, I really felt like I was hitting my mark.
0: Well, I thought it was a fun. It's a fun book with fun anecdotes. So having worked in the White House, obviously, maybe it it uh, it resonates more with me. Uh, but I thought it was fun. Anybody who's even remotely interested in politics would get and history, frankly. Uh, Would should get uh, a kick out of reading it. So I, I personally can vouch for how much fun, how much fun it is to to read. And I think it shows in in the in that you had fun writing it, to be honest with you.
2: So parties, Democrat Republican, uh, you know their powers have waxed and waned over the decades. Um, you know, far left, left, right, far right, conservative, liberal. Their powers have uh, waxed and waned as well. Kind of talk to us for uh, a minute or two, a little bit about where you see the the intellectual vigor and strength amongst conservatives in this day and age, where we're going here in the early part of the twenty-first century.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question because I think things are in flux right now. There was a time when uh, Republicans, conservatives, could look to uh, kind of the the grand pillars of uh, the the intellectual world on the right, you know, National Review, Commentary. Uh, The American Enterprise Institute, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and if you cited one of those four things, A, they were likely in agreement, not 100%, but likely in agreement, Mm -hmm. and B, they were likely agreed upon across the Republican Party. I would say that's no longer the case, and we're in a time right now where we're trying to figure out what is going to motivate a conservative, inclined person to get to the polls and is it the message that the Republican Party has today. So I think there are, uh, I think the bars to entry for being a pundit or writing in the public sphere are lowered by the Substack and by Twitter and the proliferation of additional networks and additional online magazines. And so you have a lot more voices out there, things are a lot more muddy, and I think the Republican Party is kind of going through a moment where we're trying to figure out what unites us. Now Reagan famously got kind of behind the fusionist idea, which yeah. was uh, f- f- uh, famously uh, Frank Myers idea that he, he built at National Review, which is there's a three-legged stool of, of traditional conservatives libertarian types and foreign policy conservatives and all three of them agreed on the need to oppose communism because communism was such a threat. So that was
2: their Venn diagrams to take uh, Kamala Harris's favorite analytical tool.
1: (laughs) 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 Yeah, she learned about it in third grade and she's sticking with it so um, but, uh, but it's not clear today what unites the Republican Party other than I would say there's a general opposition to shall we say wokeism or uh, intersectionality or some of the excessive elements from the left but
2: there's a growing apprehension about big tech and in some cases big business uh, a re-examination about the role and strength of government power and how it should be applied domestically i think you're right on wokeism there's a, a clear effort to see whether or not the conservative Movement and Republican Party be more pro worker, um, more middle and lower class in their focus for their public policy ideas. And you see a lot of different policy experiments on state and local levels, in particular, along these lines. Do you think that will be, this muddiness will successfully clear up here, courtesy of macro politics or the effort of leaders like yourself and others to come up with? who we are as conservatives, what we stand for. Or is it for, a leader
0: that steps forward and kind of unites? How, how do you how do you see this playing out? Like how to clear up this muddiness, Eric's point.
1: So it's it really interesting what Eric said in terms of all those issues about where we stand towards big, big corporations, whether it's a worker party or a manager party. Those are areas right now, I would say, of exploration, not unification. Republicans don't agree on those issues right now. They're sorting out their positions. But I think, Joe, you have a really good insight, which is what I have seen in my career is that when you have a leader, somebody who can go out and take the reins of the Republican Party through the primary process, which is really an intellectual examination in some ways, it's also a populist examination or or maybe a popular examination of, of what ideas work on the campaign trail, that person whoever they may be, then has the reins of the Republican Party. And a lot of voters are voting for the jersey, if you will. Right, They're voting for the Republican Party because they happen to be Republicans. And I know that the Trump Republican Party was obviously much more skeptical of trade and immigration, but it's not that long ago that the George W. Bush administration was much more pro-immigration, much more pro-trade. Bush would talk about how he's against nativism, isolationism, and protectionism. So it was a different Republican Party, but it still had a very large percentage of unity behind Bush in its day and then later in Trump in its day. So I think whoever takes the reins in 2024 will take many steps towards bringing this unity because people are going to say okay this is what the standard bearer has to say and and we fall in line behind him because or her because we agree with what they have to say and we voted for them
2: do you see that corresponding confusion and muddiness on the democratic side inside the the liberal movement now here in the
1: oh absolutely you now i think that it's it's very interesting people bemoan the state of the republican party to me all the time and i understand the reasons why and i don't disagree with them but i think the Republican Party has a future that is brighter be after Trump than the Democrats have after Biden. I think after Trump. Things have a chance of improving greatly on the Republican side and I think after Biden I think things can descend into a lot more backbiting and infighting and perhaps even madness because they don't agree on where they want to go and as part of that
2: uh, After Trump whenever he ultimately departs the scene as a second-term president or whatever is part of that because during this period of confusion nevertheless him planting a flag around a significant set of policies and driving them forward ultimately results in some clarity in the middle of all this confusion of all this muddiness that can endure, that would be lasting going forward.
1: The problem with Trump is there's kind of a separation between his personality and his policies. There's some people who like his personality and his policies, there's some people who like neither his personality or his policies, and there's some people who like his policies but not his personality. Whereas presumably the next Republican standard bearer would not be as alienating on the personality front to so many Republican voters. They can get behind him and say, hey, that's the person or him or her and and say, that's the person we're for. And we like the policies as well. So I think Trump brings this kind of unique characteristic. Obviously, he has attracted new voters to the Republican cause, but he also drives away some. And I would hope that the next standard bearer would have that ability to unify people behind the policy set of issues that he or she advocates.
0: Well, with that, that might be a good place to stop because it's another excuse to uh, invite you back, Tevi, in the future to continue the conversation. It's always fun to talk with you. Eric, thank you. I appreciate this conversation. I thought it was great. And Tevi, we
2: look forward to having you back.
1: You guys are doing great work. I could do this all day. I love it. And keep it up.
2: Thanks so much, Tevi. Really appreciate it. I'm Eric Hillen for DCEKG, distributed by our friends at Bigwig Media Podcast Network and our partners at Evergreen. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon.